0: looks like we piqued your interest in The Hideout. First of all, let me tell you what The Hideout is not. The Hideout is not for hustlers, for grinders, or for people who are looking for a shortcut to what the world calls success. The Hideout is about growing as men, creating lifelong friendships, and having the time of our lives. Are you ready to tap into the endless source that will take you from success to significance? The hideout is two and a half days of hiking, biking, and doing the little things that it takes to create lifelong friendships. I find that joy is nothing more than falling in love with your current circumstances and allowing magic to happen. And that's when we see growth in every area of your life. Have you accomplished your goals professionally and financially, and you still thirst for something more? Has success in these areas come at the expense of far more valuable things like your family, your children, and your relationships? Alignment in business, strategic partnerships, and joint ventures all come from true relationships. The Hideout is designed to get to know people before you'll ever need them. This is not your typical mastermind. The Hideout is focused on the one thing that will fuel everything, joy. And when joy is overflowing in your life, You'll find growth in your marriage, your relationships, and oh yeah, your business. Welcome to the Kelly Cardenas Podcast, where attitude is everything. I'm going to lean in today because I, I have been chasing after this guy, and I have been so excited, although it's been because I haven't scheduled anything. The re, That's the reason why I haven't got a, a, the opportunity to be able to have him on the show, um, but He's an inspiration to me not only in the business aspect, in the, uh, in the financial aspect, in the family aspect, in the relationship aspect, but also I think the biggest part is the vulnerability. This is probably one of the most powerful guys I've ever met in my entire life, and you'll see why. Um, but it, it's incredible because he, you've put your mission, and, and Buddy has put his mission in his life, to creating financial freedom uh, for veterans. And he has this, I mean, he is so zeroed in and locked in to exactly what he wants to do. But also, it's amazing because people talk about balance, and I don't believe he has balance. He just has harmony. He has harmony with his family. He has harmony with his business. He has harmony with his purpose. And all of those things work together. Um, Every single one of you is going to be blown away. And uh, if you aren't subscribed to the podcast right now on YouTube, 85% of the people who watch the show are not subscribed. I just checked that out the other day. So subscribe right now. You're going to check out White Feather. Is it Mm -hmm. WhiteFeatherInvestments.com? WhiteFeatherInvestments.com. But I want to uh, please welcome to the show Mr. Buddy Rushing.
1: Thank you. And I appreciate that. Promo for the Hideout. That looks badass. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on here, but that looks awesome. You're allowed so. to say
0: whatever. Oh, You're, you're allowed to say whatever, awesome. as long as your wife is okay with it.
1: Yeah, well, she won't be. So let's bleep that out. <laughs> she's, she's not. I told her you married a marine. I was like, cursing is part of our lexicon. It's part of it. She was like, not in my house. <laughs> so. No, but that, that, so the hideout looks amazing. Right. So, and I know Jimmy and I are already uh, talking about going to the one, I think it's in February. Yeah, so I'm yeah. super stoked. I, it's unbelievable. I've never seen somebody who brings people together from all walks of life who have kind of a unique thing in common, which is they're crushing it. And that doesn't mean perfect, right? It actually yeah. means imperfect, but they're crushing it regardless of our imperfections and our own natural limitations that we all face, right? Our own demons. Yeah. We were just talking about that, right? Like watching that movie Stultz <laughs> and uh, Jonah Hill and all the demons he's facing. And I was like, man, like we can all relate, right? Cause he's super successful and mm-hmm. success does not mean significance. Sign- success does not mean happiness. It, it wow. and in fact, oftentimes, you know, what's crazy about this? <laughs> We've seen it. And if you look around, you will actually experience this yourself. People who have a dream of success, may have frustrations, they may have unfulfilled expectations and things like that, but they don't have despair. It's the people who achieve success and realize that that won't make you whole that experience real despair, Wow! right? Did you know that when Neil Armstrong and his crew went to the moon and then they came back afterwards, they, to a man, experienced massive depression, massive, what was similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, only the, it wasn't a traumatic experience, it was what should have been the pinnacle of their professional and personal life looking down on earth from the moon and then they come back and they realize that life goes on and what's next and there was a massive gaping hole and so they turned to alcoholism they turned to a lot of distractions and things like that stuff like that and we don't go to the moon not yet but you know we all experience that in our own lives right watch the interview of Tom Brady after he won his third super bowl and they were like what's next and he was like i don't know but there's got to be something cuz this can't be it and you're like what right So success to significance, I love that, man.
0: well it's one of the things i want to dive right into because you have seemed to zero in Uh, there's all this talk about purpose in life there's all this find your why find Mm -hmm. your purpose and it's it it, we get buzzwords in our communities but you're it's very seldom that you find a person like yourself that embodies it and that has found that you zeroed in and you found that you wanted to create financial freedom for veterans like that's about as specific as you you know what i'm saying like you went like i'm not gonna i'm not casting the net wide i'm casting the net to exactly the type of fish that I want to be able to catch what was the process in that and why is that so important to you
1: oh man you know I sat down and I did my meditation and a lightning struck and it, it just came to me and I built a business out of it you know that's how it works right that's you know where did where were you, you, you sitting then buddy we all want to go and sit in this place for that's this a lightning complete lie. that is not how it do works do you have a course do you have
0: a seven step course on how that's, to be able to get yes, to that
1: for an easy yes. 1995 <laughs> yeah. it will be in the bio so the link
0: in the bio click that you know and and after you watch these videos you will be successful also. Yep,
1: that's not how it works and i i hate to to break it to you guys <laughs> that is not how it works um, I will tell you just what I always promise, and that is the truth. You asked me before this started yeah. if anything's off limits, mm-hmm. and I said, no, nothing is off limits, because if you're not your true, authentic self, like Biggie, then you don't have a story, and you don't have truth, right? And so so the truth is that... Um, I'm going to go very quickly. There's always a big backstory, but I'm going to very quickly. I guy. like
0: backstories. The oh, okay. People like backstories. Okay, well. And one of the backstories that I love about you is that you're the baby in the family. Yes. And for all my babies in the family, shout out to every one of you yeah. because we want to be out front. We yeah. want to go. We want to go to those places. We're dreamers. That's right. And how much of that does it have a part in it too?
1: Yeah, man. I so I grew up even even uh, to that point. I'm the youngest of five, right? So not a not a small family, not a huge huge family, but for our day and age, pretty pretty big. Youngest of five. I grew up in southeast or northeast Tennessee um, in the mountains. And I, when I say in the mountains, I mean we did not have electricity. We didn't have running water. We dug our own well. We built our own house. It was this really crappy 24 by 24 two story made out of logwoods and and the, yeah wood taken down from a from a, um, a barn that we tore down in at the bottom of the hill and lugged it up the hill. I'm not kidding. We had a pot stove that we heated, you know, um, we heated water on. And my brothers and I would be in charge of chopping wood. And I'm telling you, I mean, this was like 80s, 90s. This isn't like <laughs> 1880s and 90s. That's what my mom and dad were just, they were, that's what they wanted to do. And... Um, so there were some good aspects to that, but there were there were some negative aspects in that we were way below the poverty line. So food stamps, WIC. I remember going to, I remember going to the uh, grocery stores, and I knew exactly where the the cheese and the and the bread and the milk wow. and the eggs would be because that's what WIC was a program. Women, infants, and children. It's it's like a, a welfare program, and so you can only buy certain things with the card. And so I would remember that was my job. I'd go pick out those different things, and I remember every single time we went grocery shopping. My mom would put everything into the cart, and then once the total started adding up at the register, she would realize that she didn't have enough money, and we would always go take stuff back mm-hmm. every single time, right? And I thought that was part of life, right? Yeah. So anyway, the, 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 the unfortunate aspect to that, even though that they were really hardworking and, and loving parents, um, you know, my, my dad had demons that he worked through, um, you know, alcoholism and shame. He grew up in an abusive household and, uh, and you know, hurt people hurt people. And so, um, so there, was, there was that level of, of abuse and neglect and things like that in our household as well. And poverty doesn't make that any better, right? And so my point in saying all of that is that two things. Number one, being in America, it, in, it became such a huge part of my identity, being an American, because I started there but I didn't, didn't mean that I needed to end there, right? So, you know, other times in history, other countries in history, you know, my mom's Mexican, my dad's a white guy, you know, somebody who was a mixed race, somebody who grew up below the poverty line with no natural birth station would have been put into a box, but not in this country. In this country, you can be whatever you want to be as long as you work toward it, right? And so, no, that's a living embodiment of that, right? And it's still such a real part of me that I'm sitting, like, you can see my hair on my mm-hmm. arm, right? So, so I, I... You know, didn't have any money whatsoever. So I was like, "Well, what do you do when you don't have any money?" You,
0: when you-, you say no money, my buddy Darren, I talked about him the other day on the podcast, and I said he, he was like, "I'm having a hard day." I said, what, "What was your hard day?" He said, "My, I was driving my seven series, and I got a, a, a <laughs> flat, flat tire, <laughs> and then my assistant, oh, my assistant curses. showed up with my <laughs> my." My S-Class Mercedes, and I yeah. had to drive that, and she took it to get the tire fixed, and you know what? It's going to be an inconvenience. And I was like, so Darren, did you have a bad day, or did you have a Darren bad day? When you, <laughs> when you say you didn't have any money, can you give us some yeah. specific on how much money you didn't have?
1: Yeah, I will tell you this. Um, you can buy five-gallon buckets of beans, and you can buy these big bags of white rice. Yes. And the beans you have to pour out onto a table, and you have to, you have to sort, sort out the of. rocks right there's rocks in it right because because they scrape them together i love you beans and rice five days a week that's what being poor means okay right yeah however we had food this is not a slight on my mom and dad i never went hungry yeah right and they did the best that they could Mm -hmm. and so that hard work and that love and 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 the desire for for more and the and the belief in more um and they're also we're also a family of faith right and so i you know i we go to church and my mom would talk to me about like having hope and having faith and all of that. That became a part of my identity. And so when the hard times come, you can either crack and blame everybody else, or you can dive in deep inside and understand that there is hope and hope combined with action can change your circumstances. Wow. So, you know, I was like, can you
0: say that one more time?
1: Yeah. I mean, so Hope. hope combined with action and I mean blistering action, I mean, Elon type action, right? A blistering work ethic and, I say this all the time, if you have a childlike sense of wonder and, and hope, combine that with a blistering work ethic, you can accomplish literally anything, right? And you know I'm not I'm not even on the same universe as Elon. But we have been able to build four seven figure businesses, and you know it's that, that's and that's,
0: about to build the fifth.
1: And about to build the fifth. <laughs> no, that's that's a real. Yeah, it's real. Yeah, you know, we're it's building real. The we're things.
0: talking. We've been talking about it in the last. Yeah, couple, yeah. yeah. We're
1: getting ready to launch it on January. So, okay. you know, my point in saying all of that though is, I love the story of you know, the two twin brothers, right, who grew up with an alcoholic father, and one became, you know, a doctor and had a great family and raised his kids in a loving home, and the other, you know, was in and out of prison and rehab. And, you know, when they were 35 years old, they brought them both together and said, hey, talk to us about your life and what has caused you to get into this station in life. And they both had the exact same answer. I grew up with an abusive alcoholic father. Now, you tell me, right, what the difference is there. The difference is what you do with your circumstances, Mm. right? So... Graduate high school, don't have any money. It's like, well, what can you do? Right. And uh, I found out that um, the Naval Academy, the U.S. Naval Academy, you don't have to pay anything to go there money wise, but you have to get in super, super hard to get in. You got to have real high academics and all of that stuff. Um, And you, I learned later, pay in other ways. (laughs)
0: <laughs> pounds of flesh we're gonna talk about, we'll talk that, about too.
1: that but you didn't have to pay any money and i didn't have any money and so um so yeah i applied to the naval academy how much
0: would you have in your wallet at any given time
1: uh n- nothing I-, I never had anything in my wallet um so like we would um well actually that's not technically true i would get paid um, i worked at a body shop when i was going into high school okay. um so i was trying to help my mom pay rent and various things like that yeah. um, my mom worked as a teacher, and. um and yeah, uh, mom and dad divorced. I moved with her down to Louisiana. The rest of the family all split up and everything. And uh, yeah, so I, I worked at a body shop, and uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I ever had more than twenty dollars. Like, what you know, that's like
0: that was big time. What rich people have. Well, right? I remember thinking that if I got to a point where I had eighty dollars in my wallet, I'd be rich.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm, so here's here's a better uh, example of that. When I went to the Naval Academy. Um, I actually got in after. There's a long story. We'll go. How did you get Academy.
0: into the Naval Academy?
1: I had really good grades because my mom and dad always like really pushed education yeah. and and reading. We were, we didn't have a TV, didn't have electricity, so we would read all the time, dozens, hundreds of books, right? And uh, I was really good academically in school. I didn't play any sports in high school because I was working, so I didn't I wasn't able to go to after school. So that was a little bit of a hindrance, but I had a great story. And I had great grades. I I was top of my class graduating. And so I applied through Congressman Cooksey in Louisiana. And, um, you know, they were like, hey, tell us why you deserve to belong to the Naval Academy. And and I wrote this long story about growing up with electricity and running water. And I knew the power of a good story. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, this is my shot to truly embrace like what America has to offer to people that are willing to work for it. And I had great grades, right? And I really killed the SAT. And so they were like, well, this guy can handle the academics, which is the thing that kills everybody at the academy. Yeah. It's n- the academics slay you. They're so hard, right? But I also had a great story, and they were like, oh, we could, you know, but I still didn't get in, right? They still told me. They were like, no, sorry. Um, it was like a month before induction day, and they were like, yeah, sorry. we're, we're you're, Try again next year, basically. So I got all dejected, and I was like, ah, oh, you know, whatever. I'll just figure something out. And like three weeks later, a week before the course, the classes started, it's called induction day at the Naval Academy, I get another letter in the mail that basically was an acceptance letter. And I found out what happened years later. They accept a certain cohort of people. And then a lot of those people, I mean, it's an Ivy League type school, right? So a lot of those people, they get accepted to Harvard, Stanford, whatever. And last minute, right before they're like, oh, this is about to be real. They're like, no, just kidding. I want to go to Harvard instead because I want to party. and I want to, you know, live a normal life. And because the Naval Academy is no joke, right? West Point Naval Academy, it's very, very, it's military, right? And so they all drop out and they're like, oh, well, we'll take the people that were behind them. I was one of those backups. (laughs) (laughs) And so I slid into the door like Indiana Jones. Yeah. And so, but I was like, whatever, man, I'll take whatever I can get.
0: So a month before, a month before,
1: less than a month. yeah.
0: Where are you at when you get the letter?
1: I was in our, it, we lived in a little like 600 square foot. It was a duplex, one side of a duplex, a little 600 square foot place in Glenmore, Louisiana. You can Google it. I wouldn't. It's <laughs> <laughs> one, <laughs> one stoplight, not very impressive town. Sorry to anybody from Glenmore who's listening. <laughs> um, but I, but we were in there and, um, I remember getting it and, uh, I was like, w- what happened? You know, what's going on? And then I called and they were just like, well, you need to show up in like a few weeks. And so I, uh, So I actually had to dig all of my paperwork out of the trash because I had thrown all my paperwork in the trash, right? I had to dig all my paperwork out of the trash, and we had to figure out how to get up to BWI. And we don't have, at this point, we still don't have any money, right? And so we had to scrape together, my mom scraped together all the money that she had to get me a plane ticket to BWI. But she couldn't afford to go with me, so I flew in and I land at BWI. I'm this 18 year old kid with all my worldly possessions. I don't know what to expect. What year is this? This is 2000. 2000 is that what it is?
0: So uh, this is right after, uh, yeah, right after yeah. September 11th.
1: Uh, no, before, before, so that, yeah, two thousand one. That yeah. was two thousand one. Okay. Yeah, so that plays into it as well. So I, um, so I fly in. I'm I'm there at BWI. You know, most people that go to the Naval Academy, they prepare for years. They know everything. They go up to the academy. Their their parents are from. You know, yeah, every legacy knows, stuff. Always, I had no clue what was going on. So I show up there, and uh, I'm the only person without parents. Everybody's parents It's like this big scenes, like, oh my god, you're going off to war? Not really. I'm going off to class, <laughs> but okay, you know. And so. Uh, you know, it was it was a, it was ridiculous. It was daunting. Like everybody there was letter athletes, student government, top of their class. Like I'm just, I, I had never seen so many superhumans in my entire life. I was like, whoa! Like I was the top of the heap back in my little. I graduated out of it was 30. 30 people graduated in my graduating class. 30 people. 32. 30. Yeah. Wow. And so I was the top heap of 32 in the lowest education parish of the lowest education state you know louisiana's not real high on the education right and so and so i thought i was the man but i would just happen to be in this tiny little pond and then i go to the academy and it's like the biggest pond ever and there's oh whales and like you know it, it, there are unbelievable superhumans that walk amongst us. And I know you know that, but I didn't know that at the time. There were guys that were faster than me, smarter than me, nicer than me, like, handsomer than me. Like, <laughs> just great guys. You couldn't hate them, but they're superhumans, you know? And I was like, I don't know. I don't belong here. But I remember, and this is the last thing I'll say, but I don't want to get too much off of the on. No, stay. Go okay. go. okay. Well, I um, I remember the first big thing. I had never made a B in my life, just so you know, right? I'd never, I was really, really good at academics. Even was. in
0: early grade school?
1: Yeah, even in early grade school. I don't know if
0: I could hang out with you anymore.
1: Yeah, I, it was, well, I mean, it was very low standards, <laughs> <laughs> super, super low standards. It's like if you showed up, you got to see, you know, but, um, but I, uh, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't made any Bs, and so I didn't know what that, but I also didn't have to study because it wasn't the hard, academics just weren't hard in my high school, but I had never taken chemistry, calculus, or physics going into college. Never taken chemistry, calculus, I'm going to say that again, because nobody's going to believe that. It, they just didn't have it available. And so I get there, and I plebe chemistry. Right? It's the it's, plebes is what they call the underclassmen, the freshmen at the Naval Academy. Plebe chemistry is called the plebe killer, right? Because it's very, very hard. And it's meant to weed out all the people that can't, shouldn't be there academically. I've never taken chemistry. <clears throat> and so I remember studying as hard as I could, working as hard as I could, and I took the first test. And it was, you know how you sit in front of a test and they, you see all the questions. You're like, oh, I don't know the answer to that. Let's skip to the next one. And you go through the whole test and you're like, holy shit, I don't know the answer to any of these questions.
0: I just skipped the whole
1: test. I just don't know. And so you just try your best and your heart's beating. You've got a like cortisol level spiked. You're just <laughs> like, oh, you're sweating. And I finished it. I turned it in. And the next day we were coming back in to, to get the grades. And um, and I got a 47. I remember I can see that I can see it right now in my mind's eye. And that this was 20 plus years ago. 47. And I went up to him and I was like, this is wrong, you know, he was, yeah, it's all wrong, <laughs> and I was like, no, the, the grade, like, I, I had to do better than that, and he goes, no, that was generous of me, and I will tell you this, this is my professor saying this, he goes, I'll tell you this, if you want to stay at this academy, you need to change something right now, because this course will send you home, and I, I, I shot through my veins, like, I was just sitting there, and it was just like, in my head, I'm like, bro, I don't have anywhere to go, you want me to work at the co-op back home, right, at 7-11, like, that's, that's my future, if this doesn't work out. Whoa. So it wasn't, it, it, I'm not, I don't have another option. Hmm. And so I was afraid, but I remember, this is going to sound cheesy, but I don't care. Um, I love Rocky. I love the movie Rocky. I know it's a fake character and I got all that, but I I watched Rocky four like the other day. I've watched him hundreds of times because he's not a great boxer. He never at any point becomes a great boxer, but he is a, an amazing fighter. He's a warrior, right? And his whole mantra is, I'm not trying to not get hit like Mayweather. Nobody can hit Mayweather, right? Yeah, okay. He's won all these things, but Mayweather's not a fighter. He's a boxer. He's a wonderful boxer, and he's made all his money, but he is not a fighter, right? And I'll stand by that. Yeah, I believe it. So when I and that's not how life works. You cannot avoid getting hit in life. You cannot avoid and and slip and duck and, oh, you can't hit me in the back of the head because that's against the rules. Life doesn't give a shit about rules. Life will absolutely annihilate you. And it's not about avoiding annihilation. It's about being able to take it and move forward and keep the hope alive and to keep working, just working, right? Until you move forward, until you find that success. And that was the Naval Academy for me. I said, I am, they're going to have to kick me out. I'm because a lot of people leave. A lot of people, they get punched in the face and they're like, I'm out. Right. I'm going to go home and do something different. I didn't have a home. So it wasn't a lot of people, they would ask me, they're like, what gave you so much courage? I was like, bro, it wasn't courage. It was fear. (laughs) I didn't have, like, it it may not be the most noble of pursuits, but I didn't have another choice. And I learned later the story of, you know, the um, burning the ships, right? Right? You exit, and you burn the ships, and you don't have anywhere to retreat to. And guess what? You can either succeed or you die. And when you're faced in that situation, you succeed more often than not. And that's what the Naval Academy was for me. I just didn't realize it at the time. And I was like, you know, it's rocky. I'm just going to keep moving forward until they kick me out. And I eventually graduated with an aerospace degree and a commission in the Marine Corps. And that was the start <laughs> of it, right? So... So
0: it's the, it's the start, it's the beginning of it, <clears throat> and it, it's amazing because a lot of people would be like, okay, well, that's the end. Like, I did that, and then I ride it out. Mm. But he didn't ride it out, though.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: Talk to us about that, because most of the time, I mean, most of the time, people would just be like, okay, I'm in, I'm going 20,
1: mm.
0: I'm retiring, Yeah. and then I'm out.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Yeah, so the traditional wisdom uh, when you get into, especially when you're commissioned in the military from a Naval Academy, from a service academy is you have like seven years you have to do basically, right? And to pay back, because they invest like $400,000 into you. So and you don't have to pay a dime. So what you pay is in years of your time. (laughs) And you mentioned it before in 2001, when I was a sophomore, the towers were hit. I was on duty when the towers were hit. I remember I remember the the planes, you know, flying into the towers. And, you know, a couple hours later, they had a combat air patrol from the Roosevelt uh, carrier group up over the Naval Academy because they thought we were going to get hit, too. So after that, you had, you know, the the amount of people that wanted to join the Marine Corps tripled. Right. So in every graduating class of Naval Academy, you have I don't know what the numbers are now, but in my time, it was 84 percent went Navy, 16 percent went Marine Corps. Well, that 16 percent was mandated by Congress. And so you couldn't have more than that but but after 9-11 everybody wanted to join the marine corps everybody wanted to go fight right to defend our country to to hit back at the taliban and and you know the um all of the people that have supported the 9-11 attacks and so uh fast forward i had to try way way hard to become a marine after that because i thought it was going to be easier but anyway i get i get commissioned in the marine corps and we're at war right we're at war in two countries when i graduate and so we know what we're going into where do you go like I go, right
0: when you when you go, when you get deployed, where do you go? Uh, Where'd well, you go?
1: I went to Afghanistan three times. You did? Yeah. So. First
0: time. Take me to the first time mm-hmm. going because, I mean, I was saying that you're probably one of the most dynamic people I've ever met. And I'm so glad you're my friend because I wouldn't want you on the other side of me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, but can you take me into the mentality of how old are you at this time? Are you mm-hmm. 21, 22? 24. I was 24. So you're 24. You get commissioned, although you're excited, hey, we're going, you know, to fight the bad guy. Can you take us to the emotional state of what you go through as a Marine when you actually get deployed and you're you're on your way?
1: Yeah, well, so when I graduated the Naval Academy, I was 21. I went through the training school, and then I got sent out to Okinawa, right? Um, that was my first duty station. But then I got put on what's called a Marine Expeditionary Unit, which is a flotilla of ships that goes around Southeast Asia. They're responding to trouble. Uh, That's how we're able to get a, if anybody ever wondered how Marines are always on the enemy's doorstep so fast, that's how. We have these ships that float around everywhere and a bunch of Marines just waiting to fly out into, so I actually didn't even go to Afghanistan on that deployment. I went to uh, the Philippines, Leyte, you know, Thailand, Korea. There was a massive landslide in southern Leyte. We had to go handle like uh, basically saving people, pulling them out of the mud and doing all that kind of stuff. It's humanitarian type stuff. Um, So that all was happening. And then I got actually hand-selected to go to, on a team to Afghanistan from that because of what I did with the landslide. And so, um, so I go on my first trip to Afghanistan wasn't as my, my um, duty or my MOS, my military occupational specialty, was a combat engineer, which is somebody that uh, does explosives and builds things and uh, does route clearance and explosive breaching and stuff like that. And so that was my expertise, but that's not what I did my first deployment. My first deployment, I was on an embedded training team which is a group of 16 people that, of all different types of specialties, all Marines that go in and they partner with about 100 Afghans and they train them and they fight with them, right? So it's like, it's kind of like what Green Berets do. It's almost exactly what Green Berets do, only it was a special team. They had these back in um, Vietnam as well, right, where you go train the indigenous people, and there are almost no rules. I mean, it is – I'll tell you this. My commanding officer, he said – Okay, rushing. Bear in mind, I'm 24 at this time, and I'm a first lieutenant, which is the second lowest rank in the officer world. And he said, "Hey, I want you to take your team, go down and secure a 16-click stretch of the border, 16-kilometer stretch of the border from the South Op to the North Bazaar. Kill bad guys, help good guys, and let me know if you need anything." That was, that was my mission orders, my mission parameters. All right, 24-year-old. And so, the mindset—it was a combination of a healthy dose of fear alertness, but a sense of purpose that outweighed all of that. And I will tell you, not for nothing, I have not felt that level of purpose since, and no one, no one does. Post-traumatic stress, I've seen a, a meme. This is, this is going to get into why, I, why we built White Feather the yeah. way we did. Post-traumatic stress, everybody's like, oh, veterans, PTSD, car backfires, they hit the ground, they're shaking, they're freaking out. Okay, got all that, right? I saw a meme one time that was meant to be funny. And I suppose it is, but it also is very true. It showed this guy with a saw, right? The machine gun, squad automatic yeah. weapon. He's, it's a Marine. He's got all his Kevlar, his armor on. He's leaning over a Kalat wall, which is this mud wall with his saw. And he's like, full auto, right? And he looks badass, right? And it says, PTSD is knowing you'll never be this badass again. Ooh. And what happens is you find a sense of purpose there in that extreme nature with this. You're, I mean, let's Let's be honest you are there defending your brothers and sisters, your fellow Marines, right? Defending the people that you care about, trying to come back home. But also, you're a part of enforcing your nation's policy. And regardless of what you care about, the strategic nature of that mission, the second we lose our military and our ability to go and enforce our nation's policy, that's the second we get taken over. And all of a sudden, we're speaking another language. So directly or indirectly, I am fighting for the American way of life. At least in my head, that's it. And that's, I was fighting for the nine-year-old, dirty, half-Mexican kid who's on food stamps who wants a better life, right? Wow. And this country allows that kid to become an aerospace engineer and to become a first lieutenant and lead Marines in combat and, and, you know, get decorated for valor and all of that stuff, right? This country allows that person to do that. And... We're only one generation away from losing all of the rights and freedoms that our forefathers have fought for, right? I mean, let's, let's be honest. We're one generation away from that, right? And so there's a sense of purpose when you go out there do that. And it's also a sense of purpose in an extreme situation, right? Which makes it that much more, it gives it that much more gravitas. So when you come back from that mm. and you get out of the military and you're, let's just say a normal average person, 28, 30 years old. 30 years old, your skills are in leading people in extreme situations, combat situations that just don't exist in American life, right? You're good at finding roadside bombs. You're good at uh, breaching indoors, right? You may be able to get jobs with like police departments and various things like that, but most jobs, your skills are not marketable. And even if you got a job as a police, as a police person that you, you're not going to get paid nearly as much as you were with full pay and benefits. so And you don't know how to pay for stuff because the military takes care of everything for you for the most part. So you have, you have no idea what to do with finances. You have no financial background. You don't have marketable skills. You're older than your peers. You lose all your sense of community and your sense of purpose. And you're doing a job that pales in comparison to the sense of purpose that you had before. Do you understand now? Do you get some kind of idea mm. how these gods on the battlefield turn into homeless people, right? It's not a defect Damn. in their nature. If it was, then how in the heck were they people who got a bronze star for doing something that no one else had the guts to do? How That's the same person. I know, in my mind, I know who I'm talking about right now. I'm not gonna say his name, but he was one of my Marines, right? So... When you see that kind of stuff happening, it hurts. And then, but you don't know what to do about it, right? So I'm still in the Marine Corps, I'm still going through all this, whatever. And you don't Is know what to do. Is this
0: registering about- at the time it while reg- you're in it?
1: Yeah, it registers, but you don't see it. Like, I did a platoon command tour and then I did two company command tours. So I had somewhere in the vicinity of 1,000 people that were my Marines over the course of my career, that directly reported to me that I directly was responsible. And so out of that, you see a certain percentage that transition out, and then you see their lives because of social media. You see their lives, and they reach out to you afterwards, and they talk to you about what's going on in their life. And I started seeing all of these people whose lives were unraveling after they got out. And these are people that I remembered fr- from the time I spent with them. And I was like, man, how in the world is is he going through this? Right. And so it started. it started getting me thinking about it, but I didn't know what to do about it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not like you want to start another government program because there's tons of government programs, right? It, and that's, that's fine, right? I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> but separately, uh, on one of my deployments, I was in an MRAP, which is this big armored vehicle, and we're on this long-range patrol, which takes days. And it's like there's so much downtime. But you can't fully relax because you could get, get shot at any time or whatever. But like you, so. you said
0: that like that's normal. We're in Carlsbad right now yeah. with all of you listening. So most likely when I'm driving for a couple hours, yeah. I'm not thinking, man, no, I need to be kind of tense.
1: Not at all. And here's what's, what's really cool is I, um, you can ask my wife. Whenever things are really bad or really stressful – and she's like, you know, what, what do you think? Like, what are your thoughts as far as like, how bad is it? How stressful is it? Whatever. And I was like, well, I mean, nobody's shooting at us. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's awesome. Right. Cause it, it's not super awesome to get shot at. Yeah. And you know, you kind of everything else in life fades away whenever your life is being directly threatened. And so, you know, right now, I was talking to you before this podcast that like we're running into some challenges and, and different opportunities in business, right? And some things that we invested in that aren't going well. And it's like, okay, I can be super stressed out about that or I can realize that no one's shooting at me, right? And okay, if that property sits vacant a little longer and maybe I lose it, maybe I let it go, you know, maybe, maybe our lifestyle completely changes because things go really bad. No one's shooting at us. <laughs> right it's like how bad is it really you know so um anyway I read uh a, I found a little purple tiny purple beaten up book in between um you know where the radio mount was and my seat and I pulled it open and it was like rich dad poor dad I was like right, whatever this it seems like a really small whatever easy book and oh the guy was a marine who wrote it okay I'll, all right I'll check this out take if any of you read rich dad poor dad you realize it takes about 30 minutes to read it, or 45 minutes, whatever, it's super small, super simple book, and I remember when I finished it, I thought two things, number one, this guy's a terrible writer, and two, this is the most powerful, life-changing information I've ever heard in my entire life, because if you have read it, you know what I'm talking about, right, it takes... It essentially shows you ways that normal people can become generationally wealthy and change the trajectory of their family's life forever, and that's something that I would never heard in my life—not even at the Naval Academy. You know what they pitch you at the Naval Academy, or at least one, twenty years ago when I was there? Oh, we're going to bring these guys in who have these big mutual funds, and just put your—you know—put your career starter loan in with the mutual funds or First Command or whatever, and just let them handle business for you because you know you you should stay focused on what you're doing. Don't worry about finances. That's what they teach, right? Or at least what they taught whenever I was going. And so, you know. My first car, I got a 17% interest loan on it because, I mean, I was a Naval Academy graduate, right? Aerospace engineer, you would think that person knows how to handle finances. Nope, not at all. 17% interest. Eventually got repossessed because I went to Afghanistan, gave it to my brother, and uh, he never made any payments on it, so they repoed the car. So that cratered my credit, right? That's another story, but my point is, I'm this guy who, at the time, I was this guy who you would have said is very accomplished, top, top, you know, percentage, whatever, of everything— and i made really dumb financial decisions and so if you don't learn these things you don't know these things so i read rich dad poor and i was like oh i was like could it be possible could i change the the trajectory of the rushing family legacy forever with this is it is it possible that led to a series of questions and actions that eventually caused us to start buying rental properties at every duty station, and 29 Palms, and around, and then I started taking more courses, and learning more, and then Kimberly and I, my wife, ended up building Whitefeather together for about 10 years, but it was only our own portfolio, right, it was, it was just us buying properties, taking them, you know, buying with our IRAs, doing flips, and wholesales, and trustee lending, and joint ventures, and all kinds of different investments, but it was only us, right, uh-huh. so that all happened while I was in the Marine Corps, while I was deploying, while I was seeing all these people struggling, Okay, so these are two parallel storylines that had nothing to do with each other.
0: Are people seeing this, are people that you're in the military with seeing this and starting to ask you about it?
1: Yes. Yeah, that was the one common thing, is I would talk about it constantly. And everybody was like, oh, you know, wow, that's crazy, awesome, you know. How can I be involved? And I'm like, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I don't know, right? That, that I didn't have anything for them because it was just like, bro, I'm just... You know, it's not like I have a business. Like, I'm doing this in my spare time, like in between deployments. I remember one fiveplex that we bought in our IRA, my wife was running the numbers and running the renovations and everything, and I was in Helmand Province, Afghanistan, which is, I think, it's like 13 hours away. So she would send me an email with all of her information, and then when I woke up, she was going to bed. So I would read it and do my calculations and tell her what I think she should do. When she woke up, she'd have an email, and now she's ready to go. Right? That's how we ran the the Yucca Valley um <laughs> Uh, uh, fiveplex, plex, but, um, but we were doing all this stuff and it was small potatoes in the scheme of things, right? We had, I think like, I don't know, like seven or eight, seven properties or something, but they were very hundred thousand dollar properties and various uh-huh. things, not financial freedom. But what was interesting is I was learning all the skills that were necessary to do it at a larger scale. And I didn't realize that at the time. So, you know, I, I am a big believer that, you know, our course. I mean, obviously, we our decisions determine the course that we make. But I do believe that uh, that we have a mission and we have a purpose in this life, and I believe that's ordained by God. Yeah. And for me, that meant going to Afghanistan, experiencing combat, experiencing all of the life lessons that comes from that, while also serving my country and and making mistakes. Right. Um, and I I also believe that it it meant seeing a lot of the pain that. Um, that military members experienced both in and out of the military. And simultaneously us just trying to, to, to break the cycle of poverty in my family, right. And, and, and build up our own portfolio and do it in all these different, we had to be creative because we didn't have any money. So that's what drove us learning all these creative strategies is because we didn't have any money. Right. And so we'd have to take a property, you know, subject to the existing financing or we'd have to take a property with joint venture capital or whatever. So to bring all of this together, about five years ago, um, I, we decided to sell a couple of the properties that we had bought in 29 Palms, and we had, they had appreciated, and so we were going to we we're going to sell them, but we didn't want to pay the capital gains, so we were like, let's do a 1031 exchange, mm-hmm. which is where you sell the properties, and if you use all the proceeds to buy other real estate, you don't have to pay taxes, at least right then. I was like, yay, let's do that. Where are we going to buy? And so we went to this investors association. We met a guy named Matt Owens, who runs OCG Properties, and he, he's now one of my dearest friends. And he had this turnkey flip business in Memphis, Tennessee. I was like, Tennessee? I'm from Tennessee. Well, all right, I'll give it a listen. What's a turnkey flip business? Oh, you're somebody that buys properties, renovates them, puts a tenant in place, and then puts them under management, and I can just buy that cash-flowing property? Yeah. I buy it retail, but hey, it's cash-flowing, and you know I'm buying for the long haul anyway. So I was like, let me give that a shot. So I sold some properties in 29 Palms and, and bought them in, uh, in Memphis, and it worked out great. And we were, I was like, man, this is, this is the next level. This is awesome. How many more do you have? And this is where things changed forever for White Feather. He said, well, I've got like 35 in the pipeline, um, you know, more to come. But uh, yeah, if you, if you want any more, let me know. And I said, well, I, you know, I don't have the ability to buy any more, but I've got this list of Marine friends who've been hearing me for a decade talk about real estate. And I know that they'd be, they'd be on board. I said, but I don't want to charge them anything and I'm not going to do it for free. So he's like, well, yeah, I'll give you a referral fee. And looking back now, as Matt, if you're listening to this, it was a very small referral fee <laughs> for each of the properties. I would charge a lot more now. But I didn't know anything. And it, it was fair for the time. It really okay. was. And Matt's a phenomenal guy. But, but it, was, it was relatively. It was Matt, great.
0: you owe b- Buddy some money. Yeah, Matt, we're coming actually, after you.
1: Actually, Matt wants me to pay him money because we bought. <laughs> I'm going to give you the punchline here. Over the course of about two years, we bought about 300 properties from him as yeah. a group. Yeah. Right. So that gives you the punchline. We held those properties, and they're worth a lot more now. And Matt made X amount on each one of them, but lost out on all the growth and equity. And so we probably, we probably made about four times at this point what he did There we go. because of all the appreciation. And this is why you hold rental real estate. So anyway, he would be like, no, I'm not giving you any money. You give me some money. So, so I said, well, I don't know. He goes, yeah, sure. I'll give you a referral fee for each one that you sell. And I was like, well, okay, this is awesome. I don't know if it's going to work. Let's see. So I called four people. It was a Saturday morning in February, 2017, right? Saturday morning. And we didn't have any kids at the time. It was like, I was working on the nights and weekends and, you know, everything. So I called four people and every single one, I was like, Hey, I've got these deals. You know, I have finally got some deals available. They're really cool. You know, you've been talking about you, are you want, are you interested in them? And every single one of them were like, not just yes, but hell yes, right now, let's do this. Right. And I was like, Whoa, this is interesting. Right. So I started basically teaching them how to read numbers and how to, to invest in real estate and and like I said, the word spread. I've never done any advertising or any marketing. It's why you're probably not gonna find tons of stuff about White Feather on the internet. I mean I've got a website, but but we don't it's all been organic. Mm-hmm. And um and yeah, within about two years we had bought three hundred properties collectively as a group. And uh, you asked the question before about how did you find your niche? And mm-hmm. this is us taking an hour to get around to your question. That's okay. The niche fell into place because I had seen the pain of people getting out of the military. It reflected the pain and the hopelessness that I felt Mm -hmm. whenever I was a kid. And I finally had a solution from Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad Poor Dad that we had put into action. And then Matt had created opportunity for other people. And all of those pieces God put into place all at the same time. For me to be able to say, I can finally start doing something to help with this because if I can help these people buy rental real estate while they're in, just like me, then when they get out, they don't have to take a plumbing job that they don't want. They don't have to go be homeless because they can't afford the rent. They don't have to do all this stuff because they've now built up not only this income stream, this income stream from appreciating assets. And now they're not a vet that's broken. They're a real estate investor. You tell me the difference between somebody who's a wow. former Marine or somebody who's a, a veteran, right? Which there's, there's pride in that. Yeah. But you tell me the difference between somebody who says, oh, I used to be something great versus I am a real estate investor now, right? It's a, it's a mentality shift. And I've got specific examples of people who are just, they've done eye-watering stuff. And they're examples like they blow you away. And they're people who will tell you, if I hadn't built this, if I hadn't done this, I honestly don't know what I'd be doing, but it would not be as fulfilling as this, not even close, right? And then there are absolutely people who would be on the street. And then when I make this sound, this, this is real because we know this um, veteran drug abuse and suicide is much higher than it is um, for the average sub- concurrent civilian population. Um, so, in a real way, it's also about helping us save our own lives, because one thing leads to another. You see that, right? Like, whenever you don't know what to do or you don't feel like you have any purpose, it sucks. It feels bad, so you want to escape. And the way that, I mean, the military is a heavy drinking culture. So the way that we normally escape is we drink a lot. And when that stops working, we go to the VA and complain about a bad hip and get painkillers. And then we get hooked on painkillers, and then we can't hold down a job, and then we're so desperate that we kill ourselves. That's what happens. That's why there's 22 veteran suicides a day, right? This is real stuff. Wow! So a way to combat that, and, and I'm not saying that like I'm not into like uh, helping with mental health or helping with that. There are people, there are amazing professionals with big hearts that help with all of that. I'm a tiny, tiny niche, right? But I have seen in my own life, and I've seen in hundreds of other lives, that if you can help give somebody a purpose that actually is action-oriented, creates income, creates generational wealth, and gives them a sense of pride, and you can create a community around that, absolutely, you can save lives. And that's what White Feather became. But I will give credit to Dan DeVille, who's a dear friend of mine. He, um, I, he's a big time business builder. I mean, he's a rock star business guy, right? Way, way better than me. And so I brought him in and I said, hey, can you do me a favor? I, I, I've got all these people that want to buy all these properties. I'm helping them do it. I feel like there's something big here, but I have no idea how to build a business, right? So can you help me? And he goes, you know, he said, we sat in my, um, in my, office bedroom whatever for like a whole day one time and he talked to me all about business fundamentals he said I want to ask you one question you have to make this decision do you want to focus entirely on the military and their families or everyone right and bear in mind this decision is focusing on one percent of the population or a hundred percent of the population right so if you want so focusing on one percent of the population that cuts out a whole bunch of people that you that can't be your customers or your whatever right yeah and I decided to focus on the military because of all of the things that I just talked about. Because wow. that's where the pain is. That's where the pain that I can relate to is. And that's where, for me, my heart is. And so I, I would love to say that I found my mission by meditating on the top of a mountain. <laughs> and the was, lightning, the lightning didn't the come? The lightning didn't happen. It didn't come. It was a series of life events that came together and then, you know, ultimately deciding what i wanted to focus on based off of where i felt my heart going. Wow. I've been talking for a long time. That's good. <laughs> so,
0: so help help me to understand too because i think a lot of times when people go through these kind of things and they, you know, you you get in you you find your niche which let me tell every person that's listening that everybody starts out trying to narrow a niche. And what you just told us was you went after your heart and your heart exposed what the niche was and God exposed that niche to you.
1: Yeah.
0: I find that a lot of times people hard charging in that end up failing in other areas. I look at you and when I was talking about earlier, the strength that you have, the, how dynamic you are, how intelligent you are. Um, but you've got a sense of vulnerability and a, a, a self-awareness that I've never, I've never experienced in my life. How have you been able to cultivate that? Because most of the time when you have a person who is as dynamic as you are, the person just goes Mm -hmm. and they don't look at all the carnage that's in their path.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I will say that when it comes to finding your passion, do something. Action beats inaction every day of the week. Do something. Um, there's lots and lots of things that you can do. And I'm not forgetting your question. I just wanted to answer the no first one first. The, there's lots of things that you can do to dig into your why, peel back the five layers, ask yourself why five times, all the other stuff. That's all good stuff. I love Simon Sinek. Like, I, I, love, I love all that stuff. Um, personal development, you, know, you should constantly be doing that stuff because that helps. It helps give you pieces of information that you can then use to put together. But if you're not taking action towards something. And I mean, sell something, right? Everybody is selling or buying all the time, right? And if you, no matter how awesome your dream is, if you can't fund it, if you can't, if it can't be monetized by something, and I mean, even charitable organizations, they have to be monetized, right? Money is the energy that allows all things to happen in, in, in business and in, in our communities. And so, you know, do something. And while you're doing that, you can start asking yourself all the hard questions about what am I passionate about and, and and things like that, right? So it's it's not a magic bullet. It's something that will develop over time, but only if you continually move forward. So how do you do that without becoming a dick is yeah. the question, yeah. right? <laughs> that, that
0: was a, a, a better way of being able to put it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's, because I, most of the time, honestly, buddy, like, Most of the time you see a guy like you, right? And you have 50 people that are like, I I mean, you hear of the Michael Jordans of the world Mm -hmm. or the Kobes of the world. They were like, now that we hear them, like, oh, wow, we appreciate them. But Steve Kerr getting punched in the face probably wasn't that excited. I don't hear that about Buddy. Mm. I'm close to Buddy. Mm. I get to spend time with you almost every single week. And I know what I'm going to get, but I also get this, I mean... I don't just get this hard exterior.
1: Yeah, I will tell you, I think for me, it's been finding the right role models and emulating them. Um, What
0: was the wrong ones that you went after?
1: My dad. My dad was the first one. My dad was the first wrong role model.
0: Did you emulate him?
1: I think I I was terrified to be him, but I didn't know how to manifest that. I Mm. didn't know how to use that to create...
0: What you um, wanted.
1: Yeah, so I did. I was, if you had asked people who went to high school with me, I was very arrogant in high school. And I used it to cover up my shame at being poor, at being, you know, I never went out on a date in high school or junior high or anything. Like, I never had any of that stuff, right? It, it wasn't, I was, I felt unwanted. Um, and I pushed people away with my intelligence and with my arrogance, my, you know what I'm saying? I was very smart. And so like, I would be faster in conversation with it. And I would, I would hold people at a distance and prevent myself from being hurt by being arrogant. And I was called arrogant to my face. I was called obnoxious to my face. And I I thought at the time that it was something to be proud of. That's how screwed up it was. Right. And it was, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that, you know, I didn't have a good role model for what, what, what a real powerful man was. Right. And Where I grew up in my hometown, a powerful man was somebody who was physically strong or made a lot of money or was violent or whatever, right? That was a powerful man who didn't take, you know, any, th- any lip from his wife, that kind of thing, right? Did, the woman knew her place and, and da-da-da. That, that, that was the whole, it was very patriarchal. Now I know that really the inverse of almost all of that is true, right? The most powerful men that I know are the most respectful. Dan DeVille is a great example of an incredibly powerful man yeah. who can accomplish anything. And he has in multiple business arenas. And And just his force of personality is amazing. It's it's gravitational. But you tell me he's not humble. You tell me he is not, that he doesn't worship his wife and he doesn't empower her. And he, you know what I'm saying? And that he puts all of his faith and all of his humility you know, uh, in God. And you know, He is an example of somebody that makes millions and millions and millions of dollars a year, but is not a dick, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right? So the short answer to your question um, is there are are role models that are out there, and the most powerful ones that I've seen that, that are the happiest, right? That not just achieve success, but also significance and happiness. Those are three different things. Right, you can have any one of those three without having the other two. <laughs> so I want success, significance, and happiness. Um, Tony Robbins is a fantastic example of that. Peter Diamandis is a great example of that. There are people that you can emulate and learn from, like Zig Ziglar and various other people that talk about creating value and talk about, you know, turning away, like not giving into your into your the darker parts of your ego, but empowering the the brighter parts of your ego. Because ego drives us. It drives us to success and it drives all that. But the dark part of, hey, look how good I am. Let's talk about me and how much I've accomplished and all that. The reason you feel icky inside whenever people like that start talking and start talking like that is because that's not the way we're hardwired to be. That's for, for ultimate happiness, right? It's the way that the darker aspect of our nature wants us to be. And so if you can feed the bright aspects of your nature and empower that person, then you can have all the above. You can have success, you can have significance, you can have happiness, you can have love, right? You just wrap all of it in love together, but you don't learn that innately. Innately, we're, you know, flawed humans, so if you, I heard somebody talk about this, and you tell me what you think about this, because I'm just a fairly recent parent of uh, a three-year-old and a five-year-old, essentially. <laughs> You're and in it. I'm in it, You're and in I, it. I'm in it, and my Kimberly and I, my wife, will tell you that, like, without question, the first thing we always say whenever we give each other parenting advice is, I want to just start off by saying, I don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> but here's what <laughs> I think we should do, right? Right? <laughs> That's like we we don't. And if you're being honest as a parent, you don't know what you're talking about because by the time you figure out two, they're on to three, and you're like, "Well, here's a whole new set of problems yeah. or a whole new set of challenges or whatever." But I heard uh, someone say uh, a mother. She said. I, uh, her, um, she was hearing us kind of uh, correct Alana. I said, what do you say? Whenever somebody gives you something, Alana, thank you. And Austin, you know, he's like, uh, milk, uh, I want milk. And you're like, okay, what's the magic word? And he goes, please. Right. <laughs> and so not only is it cute, but it's also arming them with what I believe is the current, a currency in our world and a superpower, which is respect. Mm-hmm. Respect is an absolute currency. And I believe it's a currency that gets more powerful as you get more, as you get older. Right. People often turn like they, Respect drops off if they, as they get older, but do you know that some of the greatest investment decisions, some of the greatest relationships I've built, some of the, the promotions that I've gotten in the military, some of the, some of the missions I've got approved in Afghanistan have come from using respect to create a fertile ground where my point and my proposal could be understood and heard, Right? Respect is a currency, and it's also a superpower. And so, I believe this is just me, and again, I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to kids. But like, I think that teaching them that respect is a superpower and teaching them how to to use it is is powerful. But but she had a different perspective, and you know, I don't know if it's right or wrong. But she was saying, I I want them to, I want the child to essentially to develop all of their own tendencies, develop all of this on their own. So I don't want to force them into this or that. And I think what she was trying to say is I don't want to force them in a situation where they're saying things they don't mean. Right? That and that, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But if, but if she wasn't meaning that, if she was just saying I'm going to let them figure it out on their own, I promise you <laughs> that's going to be a terrible idea because we don't grow up naturally being kind. We grow up naturally. Wa- I want that biggie statue. Right? I like it. I covet that <laughs> statue. Right? Or, or whatever else it is that you have that I want right? Yeah. That's what we naturally want to do. And we naturally want to be mean because being mean makes us feel powerful and it makes us feel Mm. more in control of our environments. That's why we hurt people. That's why you crowd around whenever there's a fight in the schoolyard because you're not the one getting hurt. And so you feel joy because you feel power and control in that moment because something else bad is happening, but not happening to you. And so the crazy world we live in is not as crazy when I'm focused on that. That's why people hurt people, right? And so if you left a child to their own devices, they're going to grow up as an asshole, you know? That's a terrible aside, but I just thought of that. Well, what I was just
0: thinking about is that ingredients makes the cake, Mm -hmm. yeah? But your ingredients don't make any sense. (laughs) <laughs> okay. The reason? Why, let me. Let me. Uh, okay. Being the baby of the family, growing up with no electricity, um, alcoholic father. Um, you know all those things. Go into the military. Crazy discipline. You know, going through the things that you were. Um, the work ethic that you have, all the things, and then being a, a loving and respectful husband. That most of the time, those ingredients don't make that cake. What they end up making is a. Domineering. Mm-hmm. I'm in charge. You need to listen to me. How has though how have those ingredients translated into your marriage?
1: Well, it comes down to the the two twin brothers, right? They had the same experience, but they took different lessons from it. And so what I saw, and that was my dad, my dad domineered my mud. He physically and sexually abused her. He he verbally assaulted her all the time, diminished her. Um, And my mom was incredibly loving, incredibly loving. She's a great mother, is a great mother, right? Um, But she let him do that to her, okay? So people will do what you allow them to do. Hmm. And that is not a slight on her. I I heard somebody say this one time, and God, it, it gave me such peace in dealing with people. They said, everyone's doing the best that they can. And if you think about that, that's true even with dickheads, because there's a reason that they're being mean. And it almost certainly has nothing to do with you, right? It almost certainly has, has something to do with their desire and their need to feel either power, control, or, you know, to cover up their inefficiencies. That's most, that's why they say hurt people, hurt people. It's, it's real, right? And so if you understand that everybody's doing the best they can, I'm not talking about not establishing healthy boundaries, or enforcing or protecting yourself. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the vitriol that comes whenever you feel people have wronged you. So when I looked at my dad's example, he destroyed our family, right? For the longest time, the siblings didn't talk to each other. We all scattered. My sister ran away. My oldest sister ran away from home. Um, my, my, uh, all, all three of the other siblings, whenever they graduated, it was like, peace, I'm out, like nothing, no, no contact. And then my mom and dad divorced, right? And my dad you know was alone, effectively, for a long time. Um, still is. I mean, he's got somebody that's kind of lives with him, but it's, they're just partners, right? Basically like living roommates. And so anyway, my dad will tell you that that was the greatest mistake he ever made. He he will tell you he destroyed our family and he will tell you it was his fault. Wow. And he's 70 something now, right? 70 actually, exactly. And he will tell you that it is the greatest regret of his life and that he has lived now 25 years in just pure loneliness and it's the biggest regret that he ever had you could see it growing up how he would I remember we lived in a little trailer after the whenever we lived on the hill without the running water and stuff we moved down to a little single wide trailer at the bottom of the hill um, because my dad's mother was moving in with us and um um uh, she, she only had one leg and so she couldn't go move around and stuff so I remember they're paper thin walls right and I was in the room the bedroom right next to the, the master bedroom um, the sounds that I heard have never left me um, coming from my, my parents bedroom and I remember thinking to myself that's not love That's not being a man. That's not treating your wife with love and respect. It's making her afraid of you. That's what it's doing. And fear and love, fear and respect may go together, but fear and love do not. Right? And I remember swearing to myself and to God that I would never be, if he put a woman in my life that I could love and that could love me, that I would that I would take from those lessons and I would never do that. And I never ever have. And I never will. Um, And Kimberly is also not the type of woman to let someone do that to her. Mm -hmm. So finding the type of person that will bring the best out of you. And I don't mean not arguing. We argue all the time. We're we're both the youngest children. We're both alphas. We're both Sagittarius. (laughs) We're both, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I talk, I talk about this all the time. And if Kimberly hears this podcast, she's probably gonna be like, what are you doing? But it's the truth. You told me nothing was off limits. So when we argue, I say this, we love and we fight passionately, Kimberly and I do, but that does not mean abuse. It does not mean physical. It does not mean cursing at each other. It doesn't, we don't do any of that stuff, right? And whenever we slip up and just have a moment of whatever, we immediately stop and we immediately go back and we apologize and we move forward, right? Because it's not about being perfect, Right? We say stuff to each other all the time that we don't mean. In the heat of the moment when you're just so frustrated and you're like, ah, right? It's not about having perfect control at all times. It's about having boundaries that you never cross. A physical one is one for us. Yeah. We never touch each other. Whenever we're angry, we never physically will touch each other. Because once that barrier is broken, I believe that it's, it's hard to come back from, right? Yeah. We don't throw things at each other. We don't do any of that stuff. We have absolutely said hurtful things to each other, a lot.
0: Will you toss things at each other? I'm just joking. Just
1: just like, oh, like a Frisbee or something. A light toss, a light toss. Like an LED light bulb, but not like a glass (laughs) light bulb. Uh,
0: No, it's, so... (laughs) My wife is laughing right now because she's like, if you throw something or even toss, I will punch you in the throat. Yeah. So. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, and again, everybody has their own sort of boundaries and things that they do, right? I'm not trying to give marriage advice. I'm just trying to say, my dad... You know, uh, used to whip my mom with a belt in front of us whenever she would disobey. Right? Are you fucking kidding me? Like, I was a little kid, and I had I was death, death, deathly afraid of my father, and, and I didn't have the, I was nine, right? I didn't have the ability to do it. But if it was me now and I saw him doing something like that, of course he never would now. My, by the way, my dad is a sweetheart now. Old age does that to mm-hmm. you. And he'll tell you. All of this, like, was is the worst thing he ever did. But imagine that. Imagine what's going on in her mind when she's being humiliated and degraded like that. That's not a man, right? So you ask the question: How do you go from being like this disciplined, hardworking, you know, person that that's looking to achieve success in business and and fight and and you know? fight in Afghanistan, physically fight um, in a firefight and then lead Marines and so on in those extreme circumstances, but then come over here and not be angry or whatever, or you know, uh, physical or whatever with your wife. I had that sterling example. And if, and if that means if seeing him do those things is the direct reason that that is not even a part of our marriage and our life, then maybe that's something good that he can take out of wow. something he can't change. Right? Yeah. And that's what I look at it as, and and you know, Kimberly is my mom was a great mom, uh, but there were certain things that she can't couldn't or 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 you know didn't know she could control, that caused a part of our childhood to be traumatic. Right, our kids have never experienced anything. I make jokes all the time, like our kids. <laughs> They live in, like, Kimberly's like, I wonder if I'm being a good mom, and this and that. I'm like, are you kidding? These kids, like, they got the, the the Willy Wonka lottery ticket. Are you kidding me? They, It's the most loving, happy, joyous, playful household I've ever seen in my life. I was like, nobody is getting, you know, nobody's having to pick out a stick that they're going to get, you know, beat with. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're not, you know? You would get kicked
0: out of Carlsbad if, that, if you did that. Oh, my that. God, uh,
1: right? So, So, anyway, the short answer to your question is... Um, remember the two brothers who had the alcoholic mm. father and what you choose to do with the cards that you're dealt. And also read a lot of Malcolm Gladwell, because he talks a lot about why we do the things that we do and why it might shock you. And he talks about like certain people and and what caused them to have the resilience, the res- resiliency and the, and the wherewithal and the persistence to achieve great things against great odds and oftentimes it was terrible circumstances that they grew up in. Yeah. You know, and so maybe that's a blessing. It's not something I want for my kids and but if you can't do anything about it, then you can use it as this powerful driving force and this blessing. And as crazy as it's going to sound to say I have thanked God for my upbringing before. Yeah.
0: So let's go back to the ingredients makes the cake. And I've asked this question of of a couple of my friends because when you come from extreme circumstances like you have, I mean, it created and forged Buddy, who is, I mean, literally, like, I was just talking to you before the podcast, and I said, what do you see that other people don't see? And you were like, in what area? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I was was like, well, what do you not see in real estate? And you said the winter is coming. It's going to be longer Mm-hmm. Than most people think it's going to be. That's what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Am I correct on this? Yeah. Like you were saying that, and and it was almost like you lit up. Like I saw you. You know, it was mm-hmm. almost like Rocky about sure. to. You know, I'm about to go into another fight. Mm-hmm. If ingredients makes the cake, yeah. Mm-hmm. And hard times, challenging things create this amazing guy. Who's buddy? How do we raising our kids without those things? Mm-hmm help them to be able to be ready for the storms that are coming.
1: Yeah. So this is, so the, the, I think the essence of a great host on a podcast is someone that can ask the right questions, right? That's a simplistic way to put it, but that's what I believe. And that is a, that is the question of a parent especially a parent that lives here in Southern California, right? Where, you know, things may not all be all sunshine sunshine and rainbows, but there's a lot of sunshine and a lot of rainbows, right?
0: (laughs) There's a lot of them. Wi-Fi goes out occasionally. Yeah, occasionally we have a
1: flat tower on our 7 Series. But other than that, like, you know, so that is the great question, right? And I, Kimberly and I talk about this a lot because, you know, uh, by the standards of, you know, the definitions of American society, we're wealthy and, you know, but I would suggest that, by the standards of world society, all Americans are wealthy. So mm. let's talk about that later if you'd like. But anyway, by the standards of American society, we're wealthy, which means that our children are going to grow up without understanding what it means to not be able to go out to eat whenever we want or to not be able to pay the rent or, or you know, we have to move somewhere because we can't afford to live here anymore or things like that, or even worse things. They're not going to experience those. So how do we teach them the life lessons, and more importantly, the resiliency to be able to withstand hard times whenever they're not experiencing hard times, and what I personally believe is two things, and I'm open to more ideas. One is showing them the real world, and that is not San Diego. The real world is just south of San Diego in Tijuana, right, and we've been down there. We built some houses down there, and we'd so on, and I I see Tijuana, and I think of Southern Leyte, I think of driving through the streets of St. Bernard and there are people living in shanties. There are people living where they've got these like rickety, you know, wooden structures that are like eight by eight with a piece of tin on the top of it and then a cloth for the door that didn't, most of them that I saw were really happy. It was crazy. They were, it was way more poverty than if someone on food stamps is like wealthy to them, right? Right. It was way more poverty than, than I had ever experienced. But there wasn't despair there. There was joy. And that really struck me, right? Um, and then in Mexico, right, you see people that are deformed because they don't have access to good medical care uh, if you're in that part of society, the poor part of society. So showing them what the real world is like and then showing them what hard work is like. And I mean hard work, right? Right? I don't mean like you go down and you pound a few nails and then you take a picture and you put it on Instagram. I mean it's 13, 14 hours of constant work with no lunch break. I'll throw a piece of pizza up to you or, or, you know, a sandwich or something. Here's a bottle of water. Keep pounding, right? Real work where there's blisters on your hands at the end of it, right? And your shoulders are aching. And guess what? Tomorrow we get to get up at 5 and go back out and do it again, right? Hard work. And the relentless sort of um, structure of gratefulness, right? Um, Every time we have a rule in our house that if, if Alana asks for something or if I offer her something and she does anything but accept it with gratitude, and bear in mind, she's four and a half, right? So we're already starting this and we do it in a loving way. But if there is any other... Response, which uh, kids their response is always no, I want two, or I want that one, or da da da, or whatever, right? Or why can't you know can't, he has one? Why can't I? You know, all anything other than just grateful acceptance, it goes away. And you know, do you want you want you want this uh, you know uh, bar this this fruit bar? Oh, can I have two? Oh, sorry, you got to be grateful for the. Actually, I'll give him a chance first because I'm not a total dick. I'll be <laughs> like, baby, what's a good response? When somebody offers you something, what's a good response if you want it? Thank you, Daddy. Okay, no problem. Or if it's, because sometimes her body will take over, and it's like, "Ah, I want two. And I'm like, okay, baby, well, you know the rule. Like, if you have to be grateful for what you get, because there's so many people that don't have anything. Daddy didn't have anything growing up, right? And, you know, you have to understand that being grateful for things is a superpower. And so, right now, we're going to put it back, and maybe you can try again later. Right. And so, you know, again, let me caveat by saying I have no idea what I'm doing as a parent, but <laughs> None of us do. I think that showing them what the real world is like outside of this bubble. Yeah. Hard work when the time is right. Not yet. They're like three, whatever, but like when the time is right and they can put in hard work, hard work and then a constant expectation of. Gratefulness.
0: Well, the caveat here for the people listening or watching is that Buddy isn't just talking about this. You do it and you build houses down in Mexico. And you fund houses down in Mexico. And even at, like, you even constructed a a house that you would build in Mexico at our church to show people, most of which don't go down to Mexico to do it, that you built it in the parking lot.
1: Yeah, there was a big, so there's, I don't know if you know or anybody listening knows a Daybreak Campus uh, in Southern California, it's gorgeous, it's a multi-million dollar campus, it's beautiful, it's da-da-da, all that, right, beautiful fountain in the middle of it and so on, and I love it, right, don't get me wrong, I love going there, it's nice things and it's a phenomenal church, but whenever they said, where do you want to put it, and, and I was like, we need to put it right next to the fountain, where people have to walk by it before they go into the church, and they're like, well, why don't we put it in the upper parking lot, it won't be as in the way, and I'm like, the point is, That it needs to be in the way. It needs to, people need to understand that this is an enhancement of how they're living. They're not living as nice as this, you know, two by four and plywood house. Right now they're living in the dirt Mm. and they're scraping by with food. They're scraping by with, I mean, anytime it's cold, guess what? They're cold. Anytime it's hot, they're hot. Anytime it rains, they get wet, right? This is a multi-million-dollar campus, who, which, by the way, Daybreak has an amazing heart of giving, and, of of, and it's one—it's one the best church I've ever been to when it comes to, um, when it comes to missions and when it comes to like giving. And so, I was like, "Plus, trust me, they'll respect this. Like, they'll like it, and from the pastors on down, they'll like it." And they were like, "Yeah, okay, let's do it." And so, we built it and we put it right next to this beautiful fountain. It was this like. You know, two by four and plywood, and we put pictures of all of the different families that we were going to go down and help on it. And you tell me how powerful that was. Oh, it, was
0: it was unbelievable. You know? I mean, I took my son inside of it, and uh, for him, and you know, for him to experience it and see it. He, we haven't gone down with you yet, um, but I want to take them down because I want them to be able to experience it. Let Let's shift into that that aspect because one of my buddies, his name is Will. You'll meet him at some point. He's my best friend in the world. Um, he told me that. Um, he, he he, has gone to church occasionally, mm-hmm. um, but he said, you know, listen, bro, like Christians turn more people away from God than anybody else.
1: Yeah.
0: And I was like, that's actually true. I think he's right. What yeah. do you wish that Christians knew?
1: It's not what they know. It's what they do. Um, I, I By the way, I agree with him, um, and that's unfortunate because—
0: like, what do you wish that Christians knew about themselves? Like a person oh, saying, yeah. you know, hey, um, I'm a, a God-fearing person. I'm a Jesus-fearing person. And when I see this, like, I get to experience you, and for those listening, I get to experience Buddy in a men's group, in a very small men's group, mm-hmm. um, almost every Tuesday, mm-hmm. and I see what my mom referred to as Jesus with skin,
1: mm-hmm.
0: meaning that I see a Buddy that's not coming in, pounding a Bible over the top of my head, but is just living and living an example. The fact that you want to help people, you found, you know, you sat on the top of the mountain and then the lightning hit you (laughs) and you found your niche, um, that you're working inside that purpose, but you're also, you're giving, um, you're working. You're you're not like, Oh, I'm walking in and showing you the perfect thing with my wife and kids. You're like, no, I'm working on this and I'm working towards it. So, I mean, what is, what is that? Like, If you got a chance to be able to have all the Christian people sitting in a room, you had the microphone, Mm. you get to tell them three things, what would it be?
1: Well, I'd say first, it's not about you. That's the most biggest thing that I see is a lot of people will use their Christianity as the shiny armor that you should respect and that you you should be impressed by, right? And bro... (laughs) that is the inverse, the opposite of what it should be. It's not, being a Christian shouldn't be impressive about you, meaning I shouldn't be impressed by you because you're a Christian. I should be impressed by ultimately what your faith is doing for others and what your faith is doing for your life. And more importantly, like what I should be impressed by is how powerful and how amazing your God is if I'm not a Christian, mm. right? It shouldn't be about you, right? And so I think a lot of people will, they'll, they'll do two wrong things. They'll make it about themselves incorrectly and they'll make it about others incorrectly. And what I mean by others is they will use um, their Christianity as a microphone for, a megaphone even, for judgment. And it's like, okay, right? You shouldn't be, living in sin out of wedlock or you shouldn't be gay or you shouldn't be fill in the blank of what i believe you're doing wrong in your life and since coming from me it's not as impressive i believe that god believes that you are wrong whoa right so that's what happens and when i hear that from you if i'm a non-believer and i hear that from you i'm like well go fuck yourself and your god because that that doesn't, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're not coming to me with love. Do you know what Jesus never did? He never condemned without love. He would tell people what they were doing wrong sometimes. Often not, but sometimes would. But did it out of love, right? He led with love. And if you look at all the great people throughout history that have created movements and that have, you know, built built great and wonderful um Constructs that have created value in so many people's lives, they do it because they love people. Tony Robbins loves people, right? He he leads with love. Yeah. Right? And we're all poor imitations of, of what Jesus was, but like, but we can try our best. And he led with love. And by the way, it wasn't about him, it was about his father, right? So it's not about you. So That's what I would first say. It's not about you. Just understand. Second, don't use your faith as a megaphone for judgment, for passing judgment on people, right? And the third thing that I would say is...
0: Don't get veneers if you're a pastor. I'm just joking with you. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. Probably shouldn't have a private jet. I'm not, yeah, I'm just in general. It's like you could probably fly coach. You'd probably be able to impact more people in coach than you could on a private I jet. I have
0: friends who make uh, Mark Willis. Uh, you, I know you make veneers. Uh, I'm just joking. I'm just talking about the big Steve Harvey ones. Oh, yeah. You know yeah, what I'm talking about? Yeah. The big chiclets. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. So don't do that one. That's number three. That's <laughs> yeah. number three on that bad boy. Yeah. Buddy, what do you wish more people would ask you?
1: Um. Wow, that's a good question. I get asked a lot of stuff. The thing that keeps coming back to mind is how can I help? And the reason that I say that is not because I want people to help. It's because I would love for more people to understand the fundamental truth that if you can provide value first in someone's life you will get all the value that you could ever want if you're dealing with the right people. I'll make that one caveat. So what I I look at things, I use this analogy all the time. I look at it like an empty fireplace. I do not ask a fireplace to burn before I put wood in it. I will put in the chunks of wood and then I expect fire. I provide value first and then I expect heat. If you do that with the right people, I mean, I always do this. Every time I meet somebody new, the first thing I'm looking to do is hear their story, really hear it, and try to find ways to provide value, even in small things, right? Even if if it's in making them laugh, right? Even if it's not like, oh yeah, meet this guy and now you got this huge business, right? Even if it's just being nice, what if it's just being nice? What if it's just being a friendly ear to somebody that needs it, right? That's all value. So provide value first instead of thinking about what you're going to get out of it and understand that if you do that with the wrong people. You just need to, Mm. like, write that off. (laughs) Like, you will absolutely have, (laughs) especially if you start growing on, like, I know you've got a large audience and tons of people reach out to you and everything, and you have a huge amount of value that you can provide to people. Like, to me, it's, like, lifelong type value, right? So if it's with the wrong person, don't resent it just because they just took all your value and ran. No, whatever, man. Like, I do believe that part of our mission on Earth is to try to create this earth as more more like a little heaven right Mm -hmm. so if we can while we're on this earth do whatever we can to to spread positive impact to spread love to you know uh, in my particular instance to defend this way of life right and there's a ton of different ways that you can do it but if if we all collectively work together to try to make our world better then wouldn't that our world be more like heaven and so if you want, if you want to find a, uh, you know, a generalized sort of guide for your life, try to do that. Try to create value in people's lives and try to spread love. And, and the reason I say that is because if you do that with the right people like you, when I provide value to you, it's like value avalanche back, right? Because that's who you are. That's who you're wired to be. But there are tons of people that I provide huge value to that are just like, thanks, And then they roll out and you never hear from them again. And that's okay. Right. So.
0: How would you distill that? Because we had a conversation outside a couple weeks ago and I told you, I said, um, and I mean, I wish I could protect you, (laughs) Um, but you got to understand if you're listening or if you're, especially if you're watching, if you see buddy, you know that Kelly ain't protecting buddy in any way, buddy is going to, I'm going to talk the garbage and then buddy's going to back me up. You know what I'm saying? So, but. I told you I was going to protect you as far as people that I got in contact with you because you're so valuable to me. And I know the value that you bring to the world. How were you able to distill that? Because when you're a young kid and maybe you find it out, like when you started finding out this with White Feather, and White Feather was you and your wife, Mm -hmm, okay? And you start finding this stuff out. I don't know about you, but like if I go to, I remember going to the Coke machine one time. And this isn't good, but I'm gonna call myself out. <laughs> I went to the Coke machine and I learned how to reach up oh. in and pull that bad boy down. I was so excited. I told all my friends, yeah. I was like, look, you could get all the cokes you want. I was right. I was overzealous. <laughs> And then after a little bit of time, one time I came and there was no more cokes, no cokes in the Coke in machine. And I was like, I'm only going to tell the right people. So,
1: so, a terrible so, example.
0: Exactly. I'm the worst at examples, man. I'm talking about stealing. You're talking about being a good Christian. Okay. So this is where I'm petty and that's why I have to have friends like Buddy. But I'm saying Love like, it. but you catch my point, man. Yeah, sure. Okay. It's a horrible sure. example. Thanks a lot for You're welcome. breathing confidence. But I learned how to steal a Coke. I went and told all the people, they all stole the Coke. I didn't mm-hmm. get any more Coke. Then I was like, I ain't telling nobody else about this secret.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, that's, a, oh, that's a big, powerful one, right? Okay. That's a lot of people. Like So when they... did
0: you distill? Like, how did you start to distill and start to realize, like, my buddy Mark Willis, who I just gave a shout out to, he he's the Picasso of teeth. Mm. Like, he looks at the whites of your eyes. Mm. He looks at your skin tone. And then he makes your veneers mm. based off the color of who you are. Mm. Is the highest wow. level.
1: The highest yeah. level. So you can't even tell.
0: No. And... I don't introduce him to that many people sure. because I know people be on the take. Sure. There's very, there's very, uh, there's a large portion of the population that if I introduce him to buddy rushing like intimately, mm-hmm. they would be on the take. Yeah, of course. How did you distill, and how can a person distill as they go along, with still being the good? Christian yeah. man, great husband, yeah. making a difference in the world, helping veterans to become financially free. I got this amazing heart I built, you know, houses down in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Is it okay to distill?
1: Yes, you have to. You have to. And the reason is because for every person that I talk to who is a time waster, it's, that's time that I cannot dedicate to somebody that desperately needs what I'm going to introduce them to. Okay, so that's the way I look at it, because if you don't, if you just say, oh, well, you know, if you do one thing and if you just open up your doors, most of your time will be wasted, like without question. And you have to learn this by trial and error. I've had many, many conversations that were wasted time. Right. And so you learn this over trial and error. And that's what I would say if you're finding your place. And, you know, even if you're not like, you know, that you're very guarded with who you introduce to me because you know that I'm going to drop what I'm. Because of how I value you, I'm going to drop what I'm doing. I will talk to them that day or that week, depending on our schedules. It won't be, oh, yeah, 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 here's my calendar. Let them pick something a couple of weeks out. It won't be because of how I value you. And you also know that if you introduce too many time wasters, then I'm going to be like, well, the last couple of times Kelly introduced that, I still love you, but, like, maybe I'll give them it time in a couple weeks. Because you, you have to learn to say no. And you have to learn to guard your time, because you, me, Elon Musk, you know, Steve Wynn, we all have 24 hours in a day. We have the exact same amount of time, 86,400 seconds every single day. And what you do with those ultimately determines your course in life. So if you're spending that with time with people that are just tire kickers, or they're just wasting your time, or they're, litter- or they're even worse, sycophants and strap hangers, like you What you'll find, and I know that you've experienced this because you're just this like cool dude and you've got this great brand and it's like you wrote a book and you've got like celebrity friends and, you know, it's like you got a podcast and all that stuff. So guaranteed you've got people that just want to be around you because they're fans or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with fans, I guess, but I would never want fans, right? I I honestly, and there's a reason that um, I have resisted getting into certain elements of media that, produce fans and I don't there's there's certain things you can do like in social media and various things and if you present yourself properly you won't get fans you'll get you know uh students or business partners or friends or whatever that's different than fans right and I have no desire my wife and I have no desire whatsoever to develop a fan base because that's not that's not going to move forward the mission of helping military people create financial freedom Wow. because in my opinion for me to get a fan base, all it's going to do is try to feed my ego, but not the positive parts of my ego, only the negative parts that make me think that I'm responsible for all this, that it's not a gift from God, and that it's not by his grace that my heart is still beating. You know, when I got up this morning, um, I woke up before my wife and the kids, and I was sitting there like listening to like calming music on YouTube. You put on like study music or whatever, and it's like, doo, doo, doo. and I'm sitting there thinking about the day, and I start by... Uh, gratitude, right? I start by trying to find things that I'm grateful for. And oftentimes I will, I will focus on things that are, that are right in front of me. And uh, this morning I was thinking about my hands and I was like, I'm grateful for my hands because if I am to imagine that I got in a car wreck and my, you know, I got smashed up in the car wreck and my hands got mangled and they had to amputate and I didn't have two hands, I would not be able to feel my wife I would not be able to type on a keyboard. I would not be able to drive my car in the same way. I would not be able to, you know, uh, wipe my daughter's tears. I would not be able to do so many things if I didn't have hands. And so today, I'm incredibly grateful for my hands. Mm. Right, That was one of the things I was grateful for. So to, you know, the point of, uh, you know, how do you... How do you divide your time and how do you figure out, you know, where you want to spend your time? To me, I'm incredibly grateful to have these days and this opportunity. And there was several times in Afghanistan, uh, one time in particular when we were under a rocket attack and a PKM attack, which is a a heavy machine gun or medium machine gun, and they were firing down into this this, essentially it's like this mud wall that surrounds these little buildings, right? And that was where we were, our outpost. And so they were firing down into the 107 rockets were blowing up everywhere. And I ran out of this little tiny shanty building, and the MRAp was up here with the 50 cal. And that's normally where I would go, right? Because I have a radio up there. I've got a 50 cal. I can fire back at the mountain. I'm in armor, and I'm on the radio calling in art- artillery. But instead, I decide to go right and to go straight to the wall where it's just me and my M4, and, and I've got a portable radio. But no armor around me, no 50 cal, no anything. It, it would have made more sense to go that way, right? But instead, I turned right, and as I'm running, I feel that I hear this loud bang, and I feel this concussion on my back, and I don't pay much attention to it because there's tons of crazy stuff going on. But I get to the wall. I start firing. I call in beast base, fire TRP. We had mustard and mayonnaise. was the name of our target reference point So It was right up where we were seeing the flashes. So fire TRP, mustard, mayonnaise, you know, firefight over. You're like, whoa, wow, that was crazy, and you feel like amazing to be alive, and you're just like grateful to be alive, and I walk back, and I see the hole in the lot where I ran out, and right next to it, I've got a picture of this, I'll show you sometime, is this massive hole where the 107 exploded, and if I had turned left, that rocket would have hit me, and I should have turned left, because that's where the vehicle was, it's where the 50 cal was, it's where the, the more powerful radio was, but I didn't, I don't know why, I mean, I know why. Right. But but I don't know why. Right. So, um, I look at that and I think to myself, Well, if that hadn't happened, if I had died there, I never would have met Kimberly, or rather I wouldn't have reconnected with her. Austin and Alana would not be alive. We wouldn't be sitting here. Um, all of the people in Whitefeather who have created friends and family and lifelong goals and financial freedom and, and Beautiful things would not have been impacted, at least in that way, by me because I'd be dead. Wow. So, when you want to look at how you spend your time, you need to understand that each day is a gift. It really is a gift. And we have no idea if this is the last conversation I'm going to have. If I leave here and I get T-bone pulling out of this and I die, this could be the last conversation we have. So, with that in mind, what do you want to talk about, right? And how do you want to, who do you wow. want to talk with? So when you decide who to spend your time with, think about it in terms of, if this is the last conversation that I have, is this person the type of person that will value what I'm saying? And most people aren't. It's a fact of life. That sounds rough, but this is what you will learn when you operate at this level of, of the business and, and of life, it's just my opinion.
0: Buddy, is there anyone that's a veteran that White Feather couldn't transform their life?
1: Mm, I doubt it. Um,
0: Look into the camera over here, because we've been looking at each other. So mm -hmm. if you look right at the camera, you can see that. That'd be Mm -hmm. like their eyes. Mm -hmm. And I want you, now, for anyone out there listening, Buddy doesn't beg, Buddy doesn't advertise. Buddy is not out there peddling his stuff. <laughs> no. Okay. If you know, then you come get Buddy. Mm-hmm. If you want to be the best, you come get Buddy. If you don't, Buddy has never come to me and been like, Kelly, there's <laughs> been like a thousand people that didn't even choose me. I'm so sad. Can you yeah, console yeah. me? Yeah, sure. Look into the camera there and talk to the veterans. about how their life can truly change by seeing things and becoming aware of a mindset that most of us have never been a, a part of?
1: Yeah, I think um, what I will say first is there is a certain type of person that decides to serve. We are 100% volunteer military, and we have been for a generation. So, there are none of you listening to this, with the exception of some of the older dudes that were in, F- that were in uh, Vietnam that were drafted. The vast majority listening to this are volunteer, which means, and by the way, even if you were drafted, you could have dodged the draft. So, in a way, you did agree to it. So, for everyone who decides to put themselves into a situation where they can be put in between war and their home. And they can potentially, most of us are young whenever we're there, so they can potentially lose the rest of their life. And in some cases, depending on what you believe, you may believe that that's all you have is the rest of your life. So you're willing to potentially give that up for someone else. That is a special type of person, and that is the premise and the thesis on which White Feather is founded. That those types of people, the type of people that are willing to put themselves in a situation for their fellow men and women, where they could die. They're the type of people that can contribute greatly to our society. And right now, you should just ask yourself if you're living the greatest possible version of what you're capable of living. And if the answer is yes, awesome. I can't really help you, but I'd love to get to know you because I'm not, and I would love to learn from you. But if you're not living the greatest possible version of what your gifts and talents suggest that you can have, then absolutely, without question, you need to start surrounding yourself with people that pull you up. You need to start understanding the amazing possibilities that exist in America right now. It is an, let me just be specific, right? Number one, we are in the most peaceful and abundant time in human history. And if you want to read Stephen Pinker's Angels of Our Better Nature, if you want to read Peter Diamandis' Abundance, read those books. If you don't have time to read a book, listen to the Exponential Wisdom Podcast by Diamandis and Sullivan. It will change your life because you need to understand what is exi- what actually is happening right now. It is an amazing time of abundance. It is an amazing time of peace and prosperity, regardless of what you see on the news. In fact, in direct contrast to what you see on the news, because the news is, the news is just about like selling. It's, they're just about selling, you know, ads. And so they, they, if it bleeds, it leads. All you do is focus on the things that are negative. But guess what? The things that are negative don't change your life in a positive way. How can they? All they do is make you feel small and, and anxious. So instead, we don't do that. We focus on things that are abundant. We focus on things that are opportunity. I believe, and I've believed this in several different ways over the past several years. And every time I believe something like this, I launch a business and it's successful. I've also launched businesses that are not successful. So I'm not saying that I, <laughs> I'm not saying that that's a given. What I'm saying is I believe that there is a generational opportunity in America right now for normal people, average people to build generational wealth. That's the thesis on which White Feather is founded and that's why we have 500 people now, all of which I know personally, all of which I vet personally. So this is, you know, so yeah, please I hope this podcast doesn't result in t- thousands of people reaching out to me because that's not our business model. So but, but in our collective group, over the last five years, we have purchased over a billion dollars of real estate. And this is not, we plugged into a mutual fund and they went and bought a REIT. No, this is single family rentals in the Midwest. This is small apartment complexes. This is Jacksonville short-term rentals. This is using our primary loan to VA house hack. This is normal people stuff. But collectively, a group of around 400, there's about 100 vendors and about, about 400 White feather Investors, have purchased over a billion dollars of real estate. Do the math on that. And it's all cash-flowing real estate, all of it. It's all rental real estate. So this isn't us speculating or trying to do all that stuff, right? There is more opportunity, way more opportunity coming in 2023 than we've experienced in the last several years. So what I would suggest is get yourself, surround yourself with people that'll lift you up, that are focusing on things that can help improve your life. Because when you can get to a point where your financial freedom allows you to do whatever it is you want with your day instead of what you have to do with your day, then all of those talents and all of those things that drove you to actually serve your country, you can unleash in a positive way in your community. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm working toward. And that's what the whole point of everybody in White Feather is. Because I believe that if we can create a large enough group of people that are doing that, that are building generational wealth and financial freedom and then bringing people along with them while while directing their talents into providing value in their communities. We can have a ripple effect across the nation. Why not? Why couldn't we? So the, the thing though that stands in between you and every excuse and every dream and every aspiration that you have is action. It, 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 that's it. I mean, I'm not kidding. If you want to forget every single other thing that you heard in this podcast and just remember that action is what stands in the chasm between you and your dreams. Just remember that because it's the only thing that matters. You can build all the rest of this stuff later.
0: How much of an effect, when you were talking about it, it, it just kept, I mean, I kept hearing it. You weren't saying these exact words, but the, that power of proximity. And you continue to put yourself around people that, like, when I got introduced to the men's group, I got to come in, and it was already the Dan DeVilles of the yeah. world, the you know, um, the Jason Giannattis, all this stuff. Engineer. Talk to the gravity of power of proximity and the, those those people that you put yourself around. Because I mean, you really, I mean, when I look at you, I, I look at you, buddy, as a, as you could be an island if you wanted to be. You could isolate. You are. I mean, you're intelligent as. They come, you're disciplined, you got action, you got all that stuff. Why do you continue to put yourself around people? Like, you continually just wanna grow. Why is that like?
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, ultimately, an island doesn't do anything, right? Like, it, islands, if you've ever really thought about it, are interesting from afar. But if you've ever actually been on a very small island, it gets boring as shit in like two days, right? <laughs> so, so what makes the human race so fascinating is our interplay with each other. That's just from a high level. But from a personal perspective, there we all, no matter how talented you may think you are, we're tiny little blips in the scheme of things. And we as a human race have not evolved to become you know, the apex, we've not evolved to, to create these massive, amazing technological revolutions because of our intelligence. We haven't done it because of our strength. We're not even close to the strongest animals, right, in the kingdom. And it's not because of, you know, some sort of luck. It's because of how we work with each other, right? You can read studies throughout history about how civilizations were able to grow. It's how we work with each other, Right? That's how we're hardwired as humans is we are more alive. We grow more, which also leads to feeling more alive. And we also accomplish more, which gives you a feeling of, you know, um, of value. All of those things happen more and more frequently whenever we're working with others. So that's part of it. Right? But I, by, myself, by my nature, I'm a loner. Like I, my, by my nature, I'm a loner. I'm also an introvert. And so for me, if given the option... Of saying, hey, you wanna to go to this party or would you rather uh, hang out and watch this movie by yourself? Ask my wife. I will hang out and watch the movie by myself <laughs> nine times out of 10, unless she makes me. When I'm at the party, I start having fun, I have a great time, but it's just not my nature. So, this is me, the introvert, the loner, saying that life is better when you wow. interconnect with people. Life is better when you share it with people. And if you share it with the right people, you get inspired. Yeah. You get energized. I will leave here, and I'm probably late for my next meeting, but I will leave here more energized than when I came. And this isn't business. I'm not building a business right now. I'm not making any money on this, right? And you're not making any money because I'm not paying you anything. So (laughs) none of us are making money, and none of us are building businesses this way. So why is it so freaking energizing when we're here, right? Because we start, when did we start? Yeah, it was like two hours ago, right?
0: An um, hour and forty-two minutes ago. Yeah,
1: so we said we'd do a forty-five minute thing. <laughs> so hour and forty-five minutes, but and, and you know, I do have to wrap up because yeah. of, but like but like it's you know time flies and, and that's what that's what flow is, right? Yeah. That's what slipping into flow is flow is so much more easily triggered with other people. There's something called group flow, right? And flow is that time when like time just fades away and it's and you're just in the moment and you feel amazing and things feel like right now I can tell that I've been articulate. I did not rehearse a single bit of this, but do you know why? And we all have the ability to be articulate, but sometimes we fumble. Sometimes we sound like idiots, right? All of us do. But when you're in flow, things happen. And it's only because I love you and because I'm engaged with this conversation, because I respect you and because I'm feeding off of your energy. If I were in here trying to just say all the things that I just said, but only by myself on like a script, I would sound canned. I would sound fumbled. I would get bored. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, surrounding yourself with the right people, and you also want people who push you. And by the way, the very best deals that I've ever done in real estate, by far, were brought to me by people in my network. They were not deals I found on my own. Wow. So, for what that's worth, if you want to make money faster, have a, have a big network and have a network <laughs> that, that's the right type of people.
0: So there was something, and this was just a quick one, because I know we got to wrap up, but, um, you did something that your wife, uh, framed that seemed to change some stuff recently, um, that you did for her. It was just a simple thing. It didn't cost any money. You didn't go and buy a car or a house. What was that?
1: So you told us, um, to write our wives a letter and, it doesn't have to be poetic. In fact, it probably shouldn't. You don't try too hard. Just tell them what you're feeling about them. And most often, people like me were not words of affirmation people. I don't like. I it's. I'm somebody who's not terribly comfortable with praise, uh, which is another reason I don't want fans. And <laughs> I, I'm also not terribly good at giving praise. Uh, Interestingly enough to my wife, I, I do to peep to, to other men that I respect, but it's not really praise. I'm not praising you. I'm commenting on something that I find valuable in you. Like
0: specific. Yeah. 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 So
1: it's not praise. It's not like, I'm not, and I will never be anyone's fan either, except maybe Matt Damon, because he's a great actor. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, you know, and, and I also got, I also got Austin Eckler signed Jersey yesterday. Okay, all right. So, so maybe go. Austin Eckler and Matt Damon, but other than them, I'm, you know, I'm not a fanboy. It's just, I I will respect people and I will, you know, on that. But, but so anyway, it's not in my nature to, to, to say those kinds of things, but you told me to do it anyway. So who cares if it's in your nature? Just do it. So I wrote her a very simple letter and I wrote it, I hand wrote it and I gave it to her and it, it was very simple, but it was essentially saying, um, you are the reason that I work so hard. You are, the way that you have created this family with me and the love that just streams out of our household. When I come in, I work you know, from home, but out in a shed. And then when I come in in the house just to get water or whatever, it's always love. There's always happiness and laughter and love. And, and I'm not doing anything to create that at that moment. It's her. And I was like, when I come in, I see what I'm doing all this for, right? And you are the, the centerpiece of that. And she's somebody who was told she couldn't have children. And she's also somebody who has always struggled with the idea of if she would even be a good mother. And just, I'll just give you the bottom line, like the newsflash. She, she is an incredible mother, an incredible mother. And I told her that in the letter. And then I, I waited till she was in the other room and I kind of slipped it in her purse. And she found it later that night when she was leaving for, uh, she was having a girls uh, small group. And she was leaving later that night. And uh, I mean, it blew her away. It was very simple, but it blew her away. Number one, because it's not my nature to do that. And two, I think because it showed her that she is doing a great job. And for whatever reason, moms, give yourself a break. Like, I mean, I'm sure there's some terrible moms out there, but most of you are pretty freaking good. (laughs) And like, you're so hard on yourself. I mean, holy cow! You've never seen somebody that's more self-critical than a mom. Yeah, and it's like, bro, like you're killing it, like in in a job that I could never do. I am not hardwired for that. I could never be a stay-at-home dad. It's just not me. And I, the guys that are, I'm like, whoa, man, you guys are like impressive because I'm just I'm just not wired that way, you know. But and and I don't think she is either. Here's the crazy part because she helped me build businesses, right? And she. You know she loved that. She was she was the uh, the the speaker uh, moderator for one of the largest um, creative real estate investors associations in Southern California, right? And she was you know they did newspaper articles about her and like she helped me flip houses and do all this other stuff. And now she's mom and full time, and she's killing it. And you know, I think that letter hopefully helped her see a little bit of that. But she definitely cried. <laughs> it was a good sign.
0: <laughs> so buddy, I, I I started the podcast because of my kids. Um, Maddox and McKenna I believe you've got a chance to meet them mm-hmm. um, I wanted to take iconic people like yourself in the world and I wanted my kids to be exposed to not idols but icons mm-hmm. and to realize that it wasn't about like being a superhero, it was just about having the right attitude and crazy work ethic so what advice would you have for Maddox and McKenna and if you could use both of their names and you could refer to yourself as Uncle Buddy, it would be awesome uh, How old are they? Maddox is 11 and McKenna is 13.
1: Okay. Wow. I thought you were just gonna have me on this uh, global podcast. I didn't realize it was going to be like that kind of heavyweight, right That's a that's a serious question. To- well
0: I'm crea- the, the crazy thing is, and I've never said this before, but I'm creating a network for my kids right now yeah. at 11 and 13 and to have a catalog of, of people and a network. That will complete, there's no way, I mean, not to say that there's a safety net and there's no way, but you can imagine the, the people that I'm exposing them to, but yeah. every one of those people is giving my kids advice by yeah. name.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uncle Buddy. Say All Uncle right. Buddy first. Yeah. All right. Well, Uncle Buddy here. And this and Maddox and McKenna. I think we'll start with McKenna since you're a little bit older. And I will tell you that uh, I have a five-year-old girl right now, and she is the the center of my universe, and I see my job as, I mean, this is the greatest calling that someone can have, is to, um, to help her become the woman that she can be, and I know that your dad, who is an incredibly powerful, and well-connected, and amazing individual, is doing all of this for that reason for you, and I can tell you that you have a specific set of skills and you have a specific set of gifts that God gave you that nobody else has. And it's up to you to figure that out. Now, you got some help. You know, your dad can help you figure it out. I'm happy to talk to you about it and so on. But you have a specific set of skills and gifts that nobody else has. And I believe that it's up to you and up to all of us to help you develop those, and grow into the powerful world changer that you can be. And even if that world-changing aspect is just spreading love in your small corner of it, that is what ultimately life is about. And you're surrounded by people who can help. So don't get overwhelmed. None of us know what we're doing. But we can all hack away at it. And I'm a big Rocky fan, like I told you, so even if you don't know who Rocky is, because he was way back in the day, uh, you should watch the movie with your dad. And uh, there's a part in it where he says, um, just keep punching Apollo. And what that means, essentially, is you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to worry about getting knocked down. You don't have to worry about failing. You don't have to worry about shame and embarrassment, and all those things will come. But they're just a part of life. Who cares? Just keep punching. And for Maddox... What I will tell you is you have inherited about the coolest dad that anybody could have. I, well, I will tell you this just in general. he's the coolest person that I know. And I know a lot of people. And one of the things that makes him the greatest is that it's not about him. It's about the people that he loves. And he created this whole thing for you guys. He created this whole thing so that he could pull together all of the people that he knows. And he has a vast network of people, like some of the highest names. It's ridiculous. Some of the ridiculous names of people that he knows, people that have accomplished billion dollar businesses and so on. But he's using that to pull all of it together so that we can all try to impart wisdom for you. I've never heard of somebody doing that for their kid. And so what I would say to you is, that's great. And use that for what you can. But ultimately, this is your course. This is your life. And you're the only one that gets to live it. And it's between you and God, what kind of man you become. Ultimately, your dad can give his input. I can give my input. Your sister and your mom and all of the other friends, they can all give their input. But the type of man that you become, the one that you'll be proud of, the one that you'll be happy to be, the one that God will be proud of, is ultimately between the two of you. So take our advice, or don't, but ultimately listen to your heart, which is another way of saying listen to God.
0: Buddy, I can't thank you enough, man. I mean, it has been absolutely amazing. I kept you longer, uh, but I tell you, this is the quickest two hours I've ever had in my life. (laughs) Um, It has been absolutely phenomenal for every single person out there that's listening. Um, I want to thank every one of you because... No paid advertisements. You hear me say it all the time. No paid advertisements. We never ran any ads. We never done anything like that. But because you listen, because you share, you put us in the top 1% globally of all podcasts. Jeez. And also, too, we just got word in the other day that we're in the top five uh, sh- most shared podcasts globally in the world. Jeez. And that's because I didn't of know you. That. And people told me that you have to do it this way. You have to have this many minutes. You have to do this stuff. And I said, like I don't really want to do that. We want to go at it the way that God will have us to do it, and because of every single one of you, Sharon, and and, uh, and that it's been absolutely incredible. So I want to thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart. All of our sponsors, um, thank you for riding with us uh, from the beginning, and um, this, is, this is amazing. I promise the next time I won't. Keep, well, I probably will keep you for three hours next time, um, but. I told Buddy that I want to have him on more and more because there's so many blind spots in not only in the real estate, because I hope people understand that you are not White Feather. Mm -hmm. You're Buddy, who happens to be an amazing human being, who is helping people and helping veterans to become financially free. Mm. But you're a phenomenal, phenomenal human being that we can all learn from in all aspects. And that to me, man, it just absolutely blows me away. And I want to thank you for that.
1: I appreciate that. That's powerful," said. Appreciate the compliment. I'm not good with compliments, but thank you, (laughs) buddy.
0: You're officially off. Excellent.